This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we speak with John Ostrauer, Editor-in-Chief of The Air Current. He's currently working with a team developing a new flight sim controller. In the news, how a Chinese balloon impacts Boeing, a United 777 departing Maui experiences a steep dive, American Airlines pilots refuse to be interviewed on tape, and more unidentified objects shot down. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 737 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is David Vanderhoof. He's our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Hello, all. Uh, welcome to the United States of America, where we shoot balloons on a daily basis. Um, <laughs> looking forward to tonight. Um, one of our favorite guests. We've known him since he was in diapers, it seems like, but... Definitely a fun guest to have. A veteran, for sure. Speaking of uh, old guys, also with us is Rob Mark. He's contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, which is part of the Aviation Week group. He's a BizJet pilot, a CFI, has had a former career at the FAA as an air traffic controller and supervisor, and he publishes the Jetwine blog. Well, what can I say after an introduction like that? Uh David, I'll get you. <laughs> oh, no, it was Max that said that. Uh, speaking of old guys, I take it back, David. Also with us is Brian Coleman, our former associate producer and co-host. Now he's a field contributor, and Brian hosts the podcast, The Journey is the Reward, with our main man, Micah. Hi, guys. How's everyone doing today? Doing well. Max Trescott is, well, he's earning a living, actually, I guess. He's got some... Uh, paying customers and he's flying around somewhere so uh, he's not able to join us this episode but our guest is john ostrauer he's editor-in-chief of the air current he's a journalist he likes to think of himself as a chaser of things that fly and he has got previous experience journalistic experience working with the cnn wall street journal and flight global so john welcome back to the airplane geeks podcast it is so good to be back with you guys. This is magnificent. It's really good to have you back. It's been a few years, I think, since since we've had you on the show. I was going to ask when the last time was we had him on. Uh, Max, you should know that right off the top of your head, right? I should, but I don't. Hey, John, how old's the air current? The air current is about to turn five, which is wow. crazy. So then it's, it's pretty a... much close to five years, because I yeah. think it was just when you started air current. Wow. Well, speaking of starting things up, John, you've joined a startup team that's developing an entirely new type of controller for flight simulators. This is the Yaman Arrow. Yeah, I wasn't busy enough. I, I feel like I, I'd like there there's that, between the hours of like two o'clock and, and five o'clock in the morning, I still had a little bit of a little bit of you know, useful consciousness. And why do we need a new flight controller? What, what's lacking with existing? Well, why don't we? Is the question? No, okay. No, so no. Let me give you the backstory. So I've, um, if we go back to the mid nineties, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I have always loved flight simulator. It, 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 it just absolutely 
inspired my uh, my love of aviation and got me to where I am today. No, I have no doubt about that. Um, fast forward about 20 plus years or wait, wait, what year is it? Almost 30 plus years. And um, my uh, colleague, Thomas Neild, who is a brilliant mad scientist of a human being and my fellow instructor at uh, USC uh, is in the aviation safety and security program, calls me up one day and said, Hey John, I'm working on something. And I'm like, okay, what's going on? He said, well, I'm thinking of things for flight sim. I'm like, okay, wait, stop right there. I don't, whatever comes out of your mouth next. I, I just want you to know that I want in and I want to help you. I've, I, <laughs> I, 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 uh, I, and I want to make whatever you're doing a reality. And so Yaman, uh, is a handheld version of an airplane cockpit. We, we have taken all of the major controls of an aircraft and we have uh, crammed them into a package the size of an Xbox controller. And so uh, what we did, we, we took things like a uh, trim wheel, put it right there. We, uh, we put uh, mechanically linked rudders. So if you press one, one pedal down, the other goes up. Uh, we, we've put uh, you know, 21 uh, total buttons, seven different sliders, and we've given folks the ability to fly wherever they want to fly. You know, if you we made it plug and play so you can plug it into a laptop and flight sim on the road or, you know, it was funny. I actually took a cross country flight a few weeks ago and I actually was testing it and I, and I started, I got questions from the, the seatmate. And she was like, what, what, what is that? And I explained what I was, what I was working on. She's like, oh, well, you know, my, my husband is a, is a pilot for UPS flying MD 11s. Uh, and, uh, he used to fly air force one. So Q two hours of really interesting conversations after that. Um, but you know, it, it's, it's one of those things that like, it is a conversation starter. Number one, number two, it's just a, it's just a really, for the first time I'm able to do flight sim wherever, whether, whether it's X plane or Microsoft flight simulator, um, on, on desktop or, or uh, infinite flight on Android tablets. We are having just so much fun developing this thing and kind of pushing the envelope for what we, what we can actually do with it. But we, we really think we've got the, the right, um, feel for it where you sort of look, Rob, when you're flying, you know, you, you you the real the goal of flying is not to be gripping the the yoke like a with a death grip. You want to just be with two fingers, and you want to be really subtle on it. And we think we've really replicated that type of sensation in a handheld, which is really hard to do uh, when you think about you know the the delicate nature of of flying and virtual flying, which can be sort of an all over the place type of movements. It's been so much fun to try something totally different that's not aviation related, not not aviation journalism related. But obviously, uh, very much passion adjacent, if you will. So do you mean to tell me that the stuff I have on the other desk, which you guys can't see, a large screen with the honeycomb wheel and the honeycomb throttles and the rudder pedals on the floor and some other junk, do you mean to tell me I didn't really have to have that? Those are, that's awesome hardware. I mean, I have, I have all that stuff too. And I, I use it when I fly, and so uh, I have not a not a bad word to say about uh, about that hardware. I love having it on my, but it you know it takes up a lot of space in, in in my office. And so what I really wanted to do, and we really kind of came up with, was this idea that, you know, that is the artisanal cocktail of of uh, virtual aviation. We sort of this is the <laughs> this is the Bud Light, if you will, uh, to just be able to do the same thing. Uh, but also really have the same same experience without a lot of the setup. But we, we think uh, we think the honeycomb stuff is really great, and uh, we think we're it's really complementary to that to it. And Rob, it's no useless when you're on the road. That's that's the thing. Okay, 
that's true. Um, of course, I guess the good news is that I haven't been on the road a whole lot lately in the last uh, couple of years. Um, you know, people sort of stopped getting on airplanes and now they're getting back on them. And, uh, you know, but, but I, so I don't have to try to impress anybody that sits next to me because I, I've, I've worked so hard at trying to keep people away from me when I'm sitting on an airplane. I mean, they look like they're going to take the seat next to me. And I just, I use uh, Archie's uh, trick. He just kind of goes, you know, and they go, okay, okay, I'll just move along, you know. And But you, anyway, no, seriously, I bet this, this does sound really cool. How close are you guys to, uh, to the launch? Uh, I mean, it hasn't launched yet officially, has it? Yeah, so we came out of stealth in mid-January. And so we are gearing up for a... Um, you know, pre-launch and deliveries in the spring. And we are on track for that. We are, you know, right now, a uh, little bit inside baseball, we are building our tooling at the moment. We're into the sort of early manufacturing phase on circuit boards and, and getting where we need to go. So it's it's really, you know, it's fun covering commercial aircraft manufacturing and, and aircraft manufacturing, and then kind of seeing how a small scale manufacturing operation works has been given me a, a, an enormous appreciation for the complexity of, of how all this fits together. But the, I'll be honest, my, my favorite thing about all of this, honestly, is that we're actually manufacturing in the U.S. We're designed in the U.S., we're, we're packaged in the U.S., and we're shipping in the U.S. Um, we've got a wonderful, wonderful uh, supplier that we're working with uh, in Kentucky who is uh, building our units and um, helping us become a, uh, a, um, a real, real honest-to-goodness uh, flight sim hardware company. So wow. it's, it's really cool that we can do that here, and, that's the, and that, that gives us a, a lot of flexibility and a lot of um, agility, I think, to, for where we want to go in the future, too. So Boeing is not building this for you, I guess, correct? They are they are a large uh, manufacturer of commercial aircraft, Rob. They 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 <laughs> slightly larger than the handheld that we're going for, but yes, they they are they are um, quite occupied with their own um, large aircraft manufacturing. Yeah. Oh, I I think you could say they're kind of yeah they're kind of focused on that. But uh, no, this sounds this sounds right. One quickly, how what's your method of connection to a laptop? Uh, USB 11 or what are we on? Yeah, we're, so it's a, it is a wired device and that actually um, is really nice because of the latency that can happen with uh, on Bluetooth connections. Um, so you get it really responsive. Um, so, but it is, it is wired. And so it's USB C on one end going into the, into the controller and then uh, it'll be uh, USB A or, or whatever compatible cord it's it's sort of cord agnostic at that point but um the one thing i actually it's really cool you should ask that so i've explained running on my on my Mac, macbook air which is really 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 fun it's it's, it's kind of a uh, slightly less uh visually spectacular version of, of flight simulator compared to microsoft but when i'm traveling the small screen or the larger screen uh, I, I, I so i have the 13 inch macbook air m1 oh yeah and it, and it runs really really nicely uh, so what's really cool is I can bring it to my living room and I can use AirPlay to cast it on my on my TV. So I can do flights him sitting on the couch now, um, which feels like a, it's like, you know, too many, too many, like a kind of indulgences all at the yeah. same time. And the, and the like, kids go, <laughs> Dad, <laughs> why can't I play? You know, yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah, OK, OK, hold on, hold on. So, John, the uh, the operating systems this works with uh, uh, PC, you know, Windows, 
Mac, iOS. Yeah. So, um, so the one, the one thing that we really um, set out to do was make it as operating system agnostic as we possibly could. Hmm. Um, being wired, there are limitations there, not naturally, but um, Windows, uh, Mac OS, uh, and uh, Android. We are we are designed for for those. Yeah. John, how complicated is it? Because I'm coming at it from an education standpoint. It would be kind of great to have a couple of these yeah, you know, for our students at the museum, you know, for when we have classes. It's good. The software is basically either Microsoft or Flight Simulator or X-Plane or something like that. So how complicated is the control system for, say, a 10-year-old to, to try to learn how to fly? It's okay. So um, the flight testing, <laughs> if you will, uh, has successfully demonstrated that a seven-year-old uh, can have a blast with it, and uh, and, and really, uh, you know, take a a um, an extra three hundred for a spin over over Paris. And um, it, it is it is um, John Ostrower progeny approved. <laughs> you know, that's a funny question that you asked, David, because when I saw the the visual of the controller. This afternoon, and I saw all of the uh, how many six buttons and one wheel and a couple of things. We've, we've twenty one buttons, yeah. And, the, yeah. Uh, and I thought, you know, a kids will love this, but old guys, I'll bet I, I, I mean, I can't even two finger text. I mean, so I thought, you know what, I would be absolutely up and locked if I'm using this thing. You're supposed to say, "Oh no, you won't, Rob." Uh, uh, well, Rob, okay, so so this, this is actually you, okay. It's like so we so I li- we literally laid it out like an like a like a cockpit. You've got your you've got your trim wheel. You've got two poles, like uh, which you can set as either mixture or power, uh, which actually come out of the bottom. And you've also got uh, the rudder control. So these come out, and they're great. Yeah, and those are awesome for yeah for um, things like spoilers and thrust reversers. So and what what we what I've I've been able to do in in kind of the development of the different profiles for it, I can do a procedure rejected takeoff in a seven thirty seven with it oh, because we we've we've laid out we've laid out the controls in a way that allows you to do it in different hand motions, right? You can actually do this, and so it, it really is super intuitive, um, and feels really familiar. Look, I, I have about just shy of fifty hours in a one seventy two, and this feels like a you know, it feels reminiscent of that. It's, it's not a yoke, right? It's not a side stick. It's, it's, it's a very different type of experience. We think we, we've, we've been able to crack the immersion. And, you know, one of the things you're, we're going to be able to do is keep people's hands off of their keyboards and, and mice while they, while they fly, which is. Well, and, and that used to be the real nightmare of trying to play, uh, play flight sim on a laptop was that, uh, you know, F3 was to, uh, to uh, you know, get the gear down, and F seven did uh, uh, something, you know, and and you'd always hit the wrong one in a pinch because you had to think about where all the buttons were and which meant what, and of course that was just before you hit the ground, and so you always crashed. Yeah, the the one thing I haven't had a chance to do yet, uh, I haven't had a chance to take it for a spin with VR. I'm really excited about that uh, because I think it, I think it's gonna. It's going to be one of those things like, you know, my wife is going to wonder, where, where did you disappear to? I'm like, oh, no, I'm just, you know, <laughs> it's cool. Don't worry about it. So this will be compatible with virtual. So you could sit on an airliner with this uh, controller and have goggles on and headphones 
and just be in another world. Yeah, we heard you like flying, so we put an uh, uh, an airplane in your airplane. <laughs> <laughs> this is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So does it come in colors? Um, the, the initial color that we've, well, I th- we just about settled on a kind of a dark navy blue with a, with black buttons. Um, uh, but well, but I think that, um, we're there, that's one of those decisions that we're going to have to, we're going to get, we'll finalize as we get a little closer to. So when you do have, I, I'm sorry, Max, you, you were going to say something. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Rob. I, I was going to say when you do launch, uh, people will find it at what sporties or, uh, where, where will they um, find so it? So they'll, de- yeah. So, um, we're working on our, our, our distribution. Uh, right. So you now. haven't talked to Sporties yet. Okay, never mind. Um, the uh, the uh, definitely yamanflight.com for sure. Uh, it will be the main place you can actually go there to sign up for updates on sort of our progress. And um, we're working on a North American distribution just to, uh, right out of the box. And we're, and we're going to be following up with obviously more uh, international destinations and and uh, locales. So that that's definitely in our in our roadmap wow and what's the timeline yeah. look like uh so we should be um fs expo which we'll be attending is in uh the end of june it's actually i it's gonna be fine i do i'll do the paris air show uh saturday through thursday and then fs expo friday through sunday so uh i will be um either um i totally sick of aviation by the end of it which i don't think is going to happen but i'm going to certainly be a a you know a uh, total pile of mush by the end of that. I'm a little tired, but I'm excited. It should be fun. So yeah, we our goal is to be ready to rock in people's hands by then. And the uh, Flight Sim Expo is uh, is that in Texas this year? It is. It is. Yeah, it's in um, it's in Houston. In Houston, and that's uh, end of June, I guess. Right. Yep. Yeah. So that means by July we should have our um, sample copies, right? <laughs> you know something. I want you. I do want. Really want you guys to try it out. And I want. I want the the Rob Mark cranky stamp of approval. <laughs> <laughs> so so John, how do I? You 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 didn't tell me how do I plug it in? Um, <laughs> and, and actually, and, and that's a funny thing because you know I've been or I've been doing some work with a client that likes to order these little gadgets from uh, uh, you know from Amazon things that they make in China for. 19 cents and then they sell it to you for 29.95 and you th- it it solves one problem and the booklet that comes with them are about that big and they're printed in I think four point type so they're automatically trying to eliminate people like me but I, I just want to know one thing will your controller have any instructions at all or will they just assume that people know what to do with it and how to do it? Yeah, no, it's, that's a really good question. One of like a, one of the things that we have really, really tried to do is make sure that you can just plug it in and go. There, you, we're not we're not including any other software in the box um, because you shouldn't need it. It, it. it the the you'll configure it in whatever individual software program you're doing it in, in Flight Simulator or Infinite Flight or um, or X Plane. And you can just get up and go. And, you know, our, our, our goal is to, to be ready with a, a, a profile uh, when you plug it in for something like Flight Simulator um, to be ready to rock. Uh, so you really will not have to do much with it. You can configure it after that, certainly. But as far as getting it out of the box, 
it should be ready to go. Do you, do you have a target price for this uh, device? We have not announced the price yet. Uh, we are getting there. Uh, we will we will definitely share that. Yeah, as but we John, can. it's Take just closer. us. It's just us. Yeah, <laughs> just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what's, what's it gonna cost? Yeah. If you have to ask, you can't afford it, Rob. Uh, One kidney, Rob, at this point. The price goes down later. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, John, you have to get your manufacturing lined up and the suppliers and all and, and get a really, really precise handle, I imagine, on your costs and everything before before you can uh, set the set the price. Yeah, it's you know, it it's I tell you, you know, years of, of covering aircraft manufacturing and, and industrial operations prepared me for uh, yeah, yeah. the world of consumer <laughs> electronics manufacturing. Well, as did being the 787 blogger, right? Oh, gosh, did I give away your handle? Oh, my God. Oh, that it happened. Probably that definitely happened, any... Rob. It definitely happened. Yeah, yeah, it probably doesn't matter. They probably knew it anyway. But uh, I'm, uh, I think this is such a cool idea. And what a diversion from the, the kind of work that you're doing on a, on a day-to-day basis at, at Air Currents. I mean, and uh, how many people work for you over there? So we have a team of four now, including myself, which is which is great. Does that there, guy? Uh, what was that guy that we used to know from yeah. Airplane Geeks? Uh, 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 court something or other. Court something or other. Court, yeah. Court is oh, court is on. Court is on. No, uh, that's the Italian guy. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. So tell Courtney, Courtney Miller is, is is this other half of my brain. I, I have multiple halves of my brain, but Courtney Miller is definitely is is. Uh, one of them and one of the single best human beings I've ever met. And so I am, I am truly, truly blessed to have a team that, that, that we do. And they are not just incredibly smart and incredibly capable and incredibly knowledgeable about this industry and how to maneuver around it, but they are just the best people and good friends and wonderful to work with every single day. And they put up with my ass, which is really pretty impressive. There you go. Hey, and to prove how yeah. nice Courtney is, Courtney actually talks with me every year out at uh, Dorkfest. So if that's saying something. He's talking. Well, John, maybe for, for those that may not be familiar with the air current, we should describe. In fact, let me try to describe it. And you can, uh, you know, fill in what what I might have gotten wrong or or incomplete. But it's a I look at it as a subscription news service, uh, and I am a subscriber. Um, I will say, and it's, you know, you can get your news, your aviation news from lots of different sources. But one of the things that characterizes the air current, I think, is the is the quality and depth of the of the articles of the of the writing um they're typically you know very current topics in fact we may be talking about a few of them coming up in a few just a few minutes but um they benefit from yourself and others who are uh, contributors to to the air current from uh, having a lot of industry experience and background and uh, network and and all of that they can bring a really a complete perspective to a to a story. That, that's kind of how I think of the air current, John. Max, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you. That, that, was, that was very, very kind. And you know, so you know, we have really tried to make sure that look when you're when you're asking someone for their hard-earned resources, whether it's a person or a company or or whatever, we want to make sure we're not wasting your time. And we want to be really respectful of that. So if we're going to write something, write something that 
you're not going to number one, see anywhere else. And number two, not have a level of depth and value that, uh, that again, is not available anywhere else. And that, that it's, it's that, that's sort of the thing that underpins our value proposition for what we do. You know, we don't, we're not ad driven. So we're not subject to the same kind of pressures uh, of other modern media organizations, no knock on other business models, uh, but there is a way to, to build a, a model based on uh, quality that is sustainable and growable and growing um, that, that really we, we feel takes the best of, of journalism and the best of research and the best of analysis and, and puts it in a package that, that is really accessible and ultimately moves the needle and, and really adds to people's understanding of, of the complexity and extraordinary capability of, of this industry. And it really, it's, it's been a tremendous, tremendous adventure to, to dive in and build something from scratch. Yeah. And this is a full-time operation. Uh, for for you, so if you're listening and thinking, oh, this is some flight simmer, and you know when he's when he's not playing games, he's writing uh, articles about something or other. It's sort of the opposite of that. Uh, it's a, well, it's a completely I, I would say yeah, I would say that's true, but I I, I was a simmer first. Yeah. So, okay, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess the, my lineage uh, certainly goes in that direction. Yes, I no, I I am a full time uh, journalist with a uh, with a flight sim habit on the side. Do Do you remember flight sim when the little airplanes used to be kind of green lines? Um, oh yeah. I, I forgot what version that was, but I that was the first one I had. And I thought, wow, this is so cool. Look, you could see it's kind of forming a little a little heading indicator and uh and an attitude. That's so cool. And I thought, this is gonna be great. And then they said, We've made it more realistic. And I thought, how much more do we need? I mean, and then you look at the the, the latest download I did on Flight Sim uh uh, on my machine the other day, and I don't know, it's like twenty gigabyte is just the update on the uh, on the software, and uh, uh, it, but again, I can't imagine uh, working with your your controller. Uh, did, are you going to give it a name other than the you know? Just, is it going to have a nickname like yeah, Sam or something? Sam, Sam. Oh, the Sam. arrow, the arrow. Yeah, yeah. Which my wife actually named, which was. All credit to her on that one. Oh, well, I think that's a great name. I would never, yeah, I, I would never uh, try to, uh, yeah, okay. Well, um, Robbie, you hit on something, actually, and, and it, it reminds me of, so when I remember being like 11 or 12 years old and starting to sim, and I, I was in like a, it was like a multiplayer chat room with ATC or whatever and back then, and I didn't know one end of the airplane from the other and there was i remember so clearly there was this this guy out there that that was on the other end of there i don't know who he was don't know his name but he started he just you know he said you look you could, you could use a little bit of guidance and he started explaining what what a um an ils was and what a vor was and what an ndb was and what all those you know you know numbers and the, the numbers did and and how to how to navigate and it and i it, it was one of those things where Flight sim is sort of a foundation, just ab- because someone someone out of the goodness of their of their heart just explained to a uh, eleven twelve year old kid what they were looking at, and absolutely laid the foundation for for what I have no doubt has been uh, you know my love of my my career and and my love of this stuff and so you know what we're really <laughs> we're really trying to just make sure we can keep doing that. And and make it more accessible and 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 portable and and just and 
share that and that love because we know that there's a direct connection between virtual aviation and the real world and real world aviation. So, it's, so do, do yeah. you think you'll be up at Oshkosh? That or is, is that not quite the market? I'm not. Sure. No, no. It it, it it's definitely. Um, so yeah, I mean, anyone who loves aviation. It's the market, right? You know, and and ultimately, we think that the, the barriers are probably gonna are gonna drop even further with, as as software becomes accessible on places like the cloud and and, and so on and so forth. So forth. Um, are we going to be at Oshkosh? TBD. I really want to be at Oshkosh just because I haven't been since 2012, and you know, I, there there is nothing quite like uh, standing next to the runway and um, just hearing a sky full of warbirds. It is like a sound like nothing else. And it just, it's, oh, it, so I miss that. No, I, so I really want to get there if I, if, if I can. Like I said, I, I still think this whole thing is so cool. And, and have you, um, uh, since you have the, the full desk set up too, um, do you think the virtual reality addition to this, I mean, you have to have a pretty, I mean, would, would your MacBook or your MacBook, um, it's not a pro, it's a, uh, what is it? Air. Air, thank you. Would will that have the the power to drive the, the VR also? Um, you know, it, it. I don't know. Um, that's a really good question. I know that the a lot of the software applications. I'm I'm not sure. I don't know. Actually, that's a really good question. But I know on desktops, um, certainly VR is is uh, getting to be more common, and I can sort of plug and play there. But um, there's not going to be any additional sort of hardware or software required to make. Uh, the arrow work with well but you know you probably need to verify that i mean brian and i could help you out with that i mean uh, if <laughs> Come you give you guys a demo needed independent opinions uh yeah with the m processor it should work yeah that's okay brian it's not supposed you're not supposed to make it sound that easy it needs intensive oh no evaluation and i i just said it should that means that it needs to be tested and evaluated yeah, absolutely. Right. See, but, but John has the perfect tester, too. When you have little kids at home, and they go, Dad, what's this thing do? You know, and they bang it on the table a few times and uh, uh, and they break four or five of them. And, and No, they're biased people. They have easy access to tech support. He needs fresh blood. <laughs> you, you mean you mean the 10-year-old that broke the museum's brand new Lockheed Martin flight simulator stepped on the pedals and broke it? Yeah. Close to... Um, $500 worth of damage. Yeah. Stepped, you mean just stepped on him because he doesn't know they were there or? He basically stood on it. Oh. This is the yeah. custom built simulator we built for the museum that literally takes off at our field and flies around in an R22. And it's it's the advanced Lockheed Martin software there for their, so, but yeah, that, so we have to, we're, we're in the process of getting that fixed. Hey, I want to slide into the news uh, a bit and also uh, hi maybe highlight a couple of the items that have been in the air current lately so you can kind of get a feel for some of the topics and some of the thoughts on that. And uh, the, the first one is China's surveillance balloon deflates Boeing's hope for 737 delivery resumption. And uh, I think uh, we've all seen in the news the... Um, Chinese surveillance balloon that was shot down off the coast. 
And uh, there has been a lot of fallout from that. Uh, the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, canceled his trip to China. But, um, John, you looked at what does this mean for Boeing? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's hard to talk about the U.S.-China relationship and aviation without talking about the effect on, on Boeing. It's sort of they are part of the conversation. Uh, and so, you know, pre-pandemic, pre-max grounding, about a third of all 737 deliveries – here we are, episode 737 uh, – would – would go to China, a third, which is an unbelievable number. I mean, you think about when you're running it at a, a production pace of 48, 52 a month, you know, a third of those airplanes going to, to a single to a single country is amazing. And they, as a result, that made Boeing the country's largest exporter. And so when the MAX was grounded and COVID hit, uh, the deliveries stopped and they have not resumed to China. And now, at this point, the MAX re-entered service in December of 2020 and uh, Europe shortly thereafter and all over the rest of the world. And China is the largest single market uh, that has not resumed deliveries. They actually uh, recently resumed operations with the 97 that they had uh, as they've kind of lifted their uh, COVID policy to allow people to travel and and airplanes to fly and quarantine requirements. But a couple days uh, before the balloon was shot down, the balloon was, I think, actually spotted over the U.S., Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, was going to go to China. And Boeing actually said, hey, you know, we're really excited about this visit because this is going to be really – they were literally planning on this being the opportunity for the delivery stream of 130-plus airplanes that are just sitting there to actually be delivered into China. Well, balloon shows up over U.S. US airspace and – the trip is canceled and the balloon is shot down and now there have been three more that may or may not be related to to Chinese uh, spy balloons over the U.S. And let's put it this way. Any chance of, of Boeing resuming deliveries is has fallen off of the table at this point because the U.S.-China relationship is such that it's just not – it's a non-starter. Yeah, that's really got to crush Boeing. Doesn't need more bad news for the – 737 or their business in in general but with how far they are with backlogs of aircraft won't another airline be able to take them well that's a great question so the of the 130 they they're they've they said that they're going to try and remarket some of them to other airlines but i think they're sort of waiting on the sidelines to see if if the log jam breaks um if it does then those airplanes will start to go i i suspect fairly rapidly um when you think about the nature of the backlog, uh, there is a huge amount of demand for aircraft right now. Huge, 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 huge. I mean, look, we, uh, the, the, there are parts of the, of the U.S. right now that are operating well over 100% of traffic coming through, um, and airlines are showing that, that demand. Uh, and also that strain of trying to fit that many people in a system that doesn't have necessarily the capacity to, to do it, which is, which we, which is, you know, a huge can be a, we can send an entire episode just talking about that. But within that, um, you know, the supply chain has also been really fragile to get the, their airplanes, you know, delivered and ramped up again. But, you know, look, um, probably in the very near future. So we're recording on February 13th. Um, uh, India is going to announce a massive order for Air India uh, from Boeing and Airbus. And we had hundreds and hundreds of airplanes ordered by U.S. carriers last year. Uh, Delta ordered 100, 100 maxes. 
uh, Alaska ordered, I think, 40 or 50 more. And that's just two instances. And United. United made a huge order. Exactly. Yeah. 100, 100 maxes and 107 87s. So the, the demand is there. Now it's just a question of can you deliver them? So they, but, you know, a lot of this is does Boeing have access to the largest future projected market in all of aviation? And so, and the answer right now from an order and delivery perspective is no. And, the, and that is going to continue to be governed by, uh, by geopolitics, by the relationship between the U.S. And, uh, and China, and also the dynamics within China itself as they sort of stand up the C-919, the, the COMAC airplane that is designed to uh, occupy the same space in the market as the A320 and the 737. So, um, John... Is China able to wait for the C-919 or is that so far off that they really have no choice other than maybe go to Airbus to settle their demand? Yeah, it's kind of five-dimensional chess. Um, so uh, so China is laid out in, in what's called five-year plans. And each five-year plan has a various set of national priorities in them. And the, and the most recent five-year plan has really emphasized a uh, greater – independence from Western sources for things like microchips and jet engines. And so the reason they say jet engines is because the the power plant under the wing of the 919 is a CFM Leap 1C engine. And CFM is a joint venture between Safran, the French company, and GE Aerospace. And so uh, they want to have their own engine probably flying around, you know, 2027, 20, on the 919 when, when at that point they believe that they can probably build an entire aircraft themselves indigenously. And that will be a really major moment. We're not there yet. So the U.S. still holds um, the cards in terms of its ability to deliver and supply its own airplanes. Obviously, if the 919 gets cut off on engines, that will have other, that's not going to um, incentivize COMAC – oh, no, sorry, the Chinese government uh, from reopening the, the delivery stream for Boeing. So there, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a lot of horse trading uh, potentially that that's that will be going on here over the next several years as they try and kind of figure out the relationship. Airbus also has an A320 uh, final assembly line in China, so they they are building airplanes there, and um, they have a, a finishing center for A330s, I believe A350s now in in China. And so there is a lot of capability that they can do domestically. Obviously, it's reliant on 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 Airbus and, and Airbus supply chain and all that. Um, and one thing to keep in mind in the let's see. So the MAX was grounded in March of 2019. So we're coming up on four years now. That capacity, the 97 MAXs that were in the Chinese air travel system have been replaced four and a half, five times over. In terms of narrow body aircraft, some of a large chunk of those have actually been Chinese aircraft. The um, the Air J twenty one, which is a small regional jet made in China, um, has I think they they as last I, I I checked there was probably sixty more than sixty five deliveries of that of that airplane in the intervening period, um, in something like three four hundred A three twenty neos. So it, the dynamics are really interesting in terms of how China gets its capacity. 
we don't have to go into a, a big discussion about it, but there's a, you know, kind of the, also the long term trajectory of the Chinese economy, the demographics of the country. It's shrinking now. So, you know, what are the what what do these markets look like? What, you know, what what do these airlines need? How much are people going to be traveling? What's the economic growth? All of these are built into this kind of multivariable equation of geopolitics and, and and the global economy and their relationship between nations and, and their companies it's it's you could you know wind me up and i can do, do this for another hour well but all of those aircraft that are sitting in china that have not been flown for age i mean even if they said okay we're we're going to start using them again i mean it's going to be much more difficult than it was for all the airplanes that were sitting idle in in Western countries, isn't it? Because these airplanes have not been flown in a long time. Well, you know, look, a storage program is a storage program, um, and and certainly, uh, if it's a well executed storage program, whether it's in the U.S. or China, or a poorly executed uh, storage program, whether it's in the U.S. or China, will determine you know whether or not that airplane comes back quickly. The last I I looked, which is last week, they had seven airplanes that were that were reactivated, so ninety to go. I'm really curious. What happens around the 80 to 90 mark and, and whether how they feel about the amount of capacity they need and um, and getting getting things back in service. But, you know, another piece of this is also the expansion of high speed rail within the country, which has grown considerably over the last the last several years as well. So a lot of very, really interesting, really interesting dynamics at play here. Yeah, John, in that case, are you saying that they might not need as many of these new orders if all they have to do is reactivate the ones that they have sitting on the ground? Well, that's going to be the first thing, right? You know, getting getting the the Chinese economy fully up and running in the midst of of kind of post COVID, and the, obviously because they they were had such draconian policies for such a long time with the quarantines and and literally the ability to turn off aviation if they wanted to, and they did many 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 times. It just it swung like a pendulum over over the last three years through COVID, and so eventually they said, okay, you know, we're taking the taking the gloves off here, and COVID was everywhere, but it seems to have subsided a bit. And now flights, people are traveling, the, the air travel is coming back. Uh, so yeah, the, the, I think that that's going to, that's going to begin to test the thesis or, uh, around, okay, how much capacity does the, do the, does the Chinese system have right now in their ability to meet their demand? And also, I mean, China is a notoriously, notoriously conservative aviation system. And you can see it in their air traffic system, in terms of how they use the airspace, in terms of spacing, in terms of um, in terms of the amount of uh, delays that that the commercial uh, world experiences as a result of so just a very slow approach to running um, a, a a world class aviation system, and so it's a heavy focus on safety there. Um, so whether or not the system is then having been sort of at a reduced level for uh, three plus years, what's that going to be like and how do they respond to their own fragility? Because in the U S we're just, we are throwing a lot of airplanes and a lot of demand into a system that was, you know, running it at peak performance and then was down at 97%. And then we sort of brought it back in, in, in two and a half years and it's throwing off sparks left and right. And so is the Chinese system going to be similar or are the Chinese regulators going to allow that to happen, um, that's an open question. Uh, I think a big one going forward, but I think that it, you know, it's going to ultimately guide the overall global recovery as China gets kind of reconnected to the the global aviation system. 
All right, let's uh, press on. This uh, next story, also from the Air Current, is United Dive After Maui Departure adds to a list of uh, industry close calls. And it does seem like commercial aviation has had a quite a number of safety incidents lately. And in this case, uh, it was a Boeing 777-200 uh, departing Maui. And I guess the weather was a little stormy, but they climbed to uh, 2,200 feet and then went into a steep dive down to below 775 feet. And the plane recovered and continued its flight to San Francisco. Uh, Rob, we don't we don't have any ideas what might have caused this at this point, do we? Uh, John knows. John knows. Uh, yeah. Oh, I, no, I he don't. Wrote think... the article. Uh, oh, that's right. I um, want to see if Rob read it. No, I, I don't. I don't think we do. In fact, I've uh, I've chatted with a few of my contacts at at United and. Uh, of course, the triple sevens that that they were using on those uh, Hawaii runs are some of United's oldest triple sevens. So they've been around. They're very strong. Uh, however, I don't know about the level of the automation in them uh, that uh, as as it might compare to a a late model seven eight seven. But but still, I was just trying to. This whole thing is just so weird because I mean, would you think that uh, the uh, the, the rate of descent that was somehow mentioned in your story, John, I mean, that's works out to, I don't know what, 150 feet a second or something like that. But I mean, when you only have 1500 feet to go from 2200 down to 700, uh, it doesn't take very long to go through 1500 feet. Uh, what would that be? 10 seconds. Uh, but I, so I'm just really curious how come, and maybe you've been asked this a hundred times, how come nobody knew about this other than you? Did you make this up, John? Come on. You can tell us. We're all friends here. No, that, I, that is seriously. that, that it, uh, the power to do that to an airplane is not one that I, I possess, nor would want to. <laughs> uh, you know, the I first heard about this at the end of last week, and it sort of sent me on a, a bit of a a wild goose chase to try to figure out what was real, what wasn't real. Um, and when I saw the, the flight radar 24 data, that was really the, the indication that something very weird had, had, had happened here. Well, you and think so, pulling 2.7 G's is a weird occurrence on a commercial airline? Just lately. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, this, you know, it's funny. You think about what, what that is in sort of a, uh, a layman comparison. Uh, the space shuttle does three uh, on launch. And so it absolutely must've felt, pretty nauseating uh, during that during that minute period and you know they there was a radio call at about 1400 feet on their way to 5000 and then there was a uh, another call um as on the other side of the incident and as they were cleared to, to a, a waypoint about 190 miles east of of uh of maui and it happened really really fast and you could, you could, you know, if you were, if you didn't know, you could maybe just make out a little bit of stress in the, in the, uh, in the person on the radio's voice. Um, but 
why this happened is is not clear at this point. There is an ongoing flight safety investigation within in United, and um, the the FAA uh, was notified. Uh, the NTSB did not open an investigation. They were not notified uh, because it didn't meet the criteria for uh, for an investigation, which is typically it was their damage uh, to the aircraft and was anyone injured. And, and thankfully, neither was the case here. But um, it is an ongoing investigation inside United, and the the pilots are currently in retraining at the moment. And that is a, uh, um, a function of what I think is a, uh, one of the unsung heroes of us aviation safety, which is what's called the ASAP program. And it, the ASAP program is, uh, the ability for crew members to, uh, confidentially report safety infractions that they are involved in. And in a, it's a non-punitive system that focuses on training and risk mitigation and allows for, uh, there to be safety issues happening without sort of the stigma of, of, of people hiding them because you can't fix what you hide. Uh, and so they filed a report when they landed in San Francisco. The aircraft was inspected uh, before it uh, went back in service to flew to Chicago a couple hours later. Uh, probably a testament to how, how well designed the, the 777 airframe is. Um, but ultimately, these pilots are being are going through training right now and there's an investigation ongoing but but the things we do not know at this point sitting here uh on february the afternoon of february 13th what actually caused this upset to happen in the first place and going from 2200 feet in uh, an overclass uh, overcast cloud layer down to 775 feet and probably even a little bit lower based on the vertical speed that was observed at that point uh all the way back to 3000 in all of that in about 45, 50 seconds is uh, a pretty amazing thing. We don't know what, what actually caused that to happen or the circumstances behind it. And that's something that I'm really quite curious about at this point. It must have really freaked out the passengers. That's what I was going to ask. We haven't seen any data about passengers. Did you hear about that at all, John? Yeah, I spoke with one uh, yesterday evening. And uh, it was actually a, he was an a aviation major in uh in in college so he kind of knew what he was what he was looking at and it he said it only it all you know happened within seconds and and the awareness of um of uh the crew uh flight attendants i think that they were sort of you know he seemed to indicate that the flight attendants were sort of looking at each other being like is that normal uh after the fact um and but yeah, he, he said, you know, it, it was one of those moments where I, I, I kind of wished ignorance was bliss. I wish I didn't know what was going on. But it, he said I, he was pretty sure that he had experienced a stick shaker uh, of some kind. Uh, whether or not that's actually what happened is is an open question. But certainly the when it when the, when the nose goes up, the nose goes down, and the nose goes up again. Uh, you know, it it can it can catch if not your eye, then definitely your stomach. Well, thank good. Yeah, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, John, I. I guarantee you, if I am ever on a plane and something like this happens, I will get in touch with you. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's good. That's good. Well, you, you've been in a few of them, so I, hopefully your, 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 luck, your luck continues. I, I was going to say that – oh, I'm sorry, John. Now I interrupted you. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. Just, just that, that the, the idea that it didn't get out, I don't think there's any rhyme or reason to what does and what doesn't in, in large measure. I think sometimes people tweet about, uh, about what their experiences on a flight is, you know, sometimes they don't and this one landed in san francisco after a you know a five-hour flight roughly five-hour flight and uh you know whether those passengers were connecting it's nine it's nine thirty at night you know you just got off a of a half a pacific crossing 
you know, was the Wi-Fi working? You know, did anyone did anyone really notice? And it's, it's it's funny, you know, the difference in recollection in the quality of the recollection of passengers versus crew is extreme. There's a reason the the, the NTSB rarely relies on on passenger eyewitnesses. Um, they definitely definitely collect those, but they're certainly weighted differently than crew recollections. But I, I think it. it it's it's hard to gauge that you know in terms of you know how how you were feeling in the moment what what did they feel when did they feel it and it also happened the same day that the Hawaiian A330 had that terrible uh, turbulence event between Phoenix and Honolulu and this was the same storm that actually caught that was actually going on around the flight as the United flight as it happened so you know did they chalk it up to turbulence did they you know what, it might not have just registered in that way I don't know um, but certainly. United was aware that it happened at the time, and uh, I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that they were on the on the lookout at the, in that moment for uh, people talking about it. But it it was not discussed at all. Well, thank goodness that uh, it happened when it did, because if uh, if it had been a little later in the flight, uh, flight attendants might have been up and around in the cabin, and for certain, somebody really would have gotten. Uh, hurt, I believe, uh, from what it sounds like. And again, thank goodness that that didn't happen. But I just want to ask you what, you know, I I do a couple of articles here and there. I write a little and I, I, I'm not as good as you are. But, you know, I, so I have a, a journalistic question for you. But when this, you know, this was such an unusual event, how did you, um, without giving us the secret sauce, how, how did you go about verifying that what you heard was actually true? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. And I I think it's really important when you're doing something like this, you start with a blank sheet of paper and fundamentally you need to figure out what you're, the difference between what you're hearing and what you can tell people you're hearing. And, and, and and I, and I, I think, don't think it will be surprised to any, anyone or anyone who is in the journalism world that the amount you can tell people and what you put on paper is very different from the amount of things you hear because sometimes you hear things that are just not reportable um, because number one, they're not verified. Number two, you don't have multiple sources. Sometimes you all, you know, especially when you're dealing with, um, with aviation, it in, in airline incidents. And so this case, it's really important that you remember that the plural of anecdote or rumor is not fact, just because multiple people have heard the same rumor doesn't make it a fact. And so, so being able to be really judicious about what you can really put your hands on. Um, and our initial report focused heavily on the flight radar data to verify what we understood. And we, we understood sort of what happened um, in, in terms of the um, to what in terms of the airplane's performance or that 2.7 G was not that was that was a part of facts that we confirmed uh, going into this. But again, we don't know what ultimately caused this. And, uh, you know, look, I won't surprise you guys to hear that we were talked to various folks who who, you know, before and after who had heard different versions of this. Uh, ultimately, the there was a there were common threads that you could confirm uh, against the data, and ultimately going to um, the FAA for comment, going to United for comment, uh, going to the NTSB for comment uh, was really important as as a part of this. And and uh, you know obviously we had the the data to say this absolutely happened, so it elicited a uh, a comment from from uh, all three. 
but I think, you know, where we go from here is now trying to understand why it happened. And, and that's sort of, you know, it's how I spent my, my day trying to understand, you know, and, and again, there, there, in situations like this, there are literally folks who are hearing various things about the like three very different, I've heard three very different scenarios for what may have happened. And I don't know. Uh, and at this point right now, none of them are reportable because I, I'm not satisfied that, that, that I can confirm them and, and, and share with the world, you know, look, there's the hangar talk that happens all the time. And then there's the, then there's the things you can, that, you know, you can put your hands on and, and, and really explain to people and, and frankly, introducing information that is not accurate does no one any good. John, it, it, I, I, I'm sure you're aware. I commented on your post on Twitter today about all of the other headlines that have suddenly popped up about this incident. And it is really important to get the facts right. And, and you are always there to put the facts right and not the headlines. And um, it really is kind of refreshing that, you know, you're not trying to spin it anyway. It's just, this is a matter, a matter of fact, this is what happened. It happened in severe weather. I, you were talking about this and four years ago, I flew to Hawaii this day and I was in severe turbulence from Arizona to the big Island. So I, I, I viscerally remember the bumps and the nausea and stuff on that flight to Hawaii. So but it is really important that you like, and I'm thankful for someone, people like you who get the facts before they release it, you know, and double check and triple check it because yeah. it's too easy that. to be heard the wrong way. I was just going to say the same thing. And that, folks, is the difference between what we call responsible journalism and uh, occasional social media and Rob Marks posting. comments. Uh, no, no, I, I, I tried. You know, really, and and you know, having been around the the blogosphere since two thousand and six, uh, I mean, th there was that. It was so cool because nobody was really reporting much uh, other than the newspapers about about the industry and and every so often something like this would happen you say oh man if if i get this first i i could be the first one to report this and there was a lot of that floating around and and i would tell people Jesus, guys you got to get it right because it it's going to make you look really bad if you report something and then you find out that it's not true. People are going to laugh at you. They're never going to believe anything you say again. But there, uh, to this day, there are still people that will post things uh, that you think, how could this possibly be true? And you find out it's not. And those people are okay with it. Since we've taken kind of a diversion from the news to talk about sort of the journalistic process, John, I'll tell you that my 90-year-old mother yesterday asked me, who's your guest this week? And I said, John Ostrower. This morning, she presents me with a list of questions to ask you. Oh, my God. <laughs> Mama Flight. Mama Flight. Grammy Flight. That's what we call yeah. it. Grammy Flight. Um, so let me just try one or two of these. If, okay. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> if, if for no other reason that I, I can't go back and say I didn't ask you, I'm going to tell her that. Actually, one of them you, you, you kind of uh, touched on, which is, you know, are people willing to talk or do you have to sleuth things out? And I think it's, it, it's kind of both. A little bit of both. Yeah. A little bit yeah. of both. But here, here's one. She, she wanted to know 
Uh, how is aviation coverage in the press now different than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Um, oh, God, what a great question. Uh, social media has changed how aviation is covered, without a doubt, because there's a really important difference between news that happens, um, aviation news, and news that happens next to aviation and those are two totally different things, and they often get massively conflated. Someone fights in an airplane. Okay, that's not that's not aviation news. That's news that happens inside of aviation. Mm -hmm. And so, um, a lot of the industry coverage has been in that direction, for, certainly from the mainstream, in terms of what the passenger experience is like and and, and the consumer experience. Um, I, I think one of the great things, look. Here, here we are. We're we're talking about the spate of incidents in aviation over over the last three or four months. Uh, whether it's the you know Austin close call or the JFK runway incursion or or what happened in in Maui, the Southwest uh, meltdown, the no tam stuff, all of these things. Just how out of the ordinary that really is, because the because in the U.S. we um, have or North America really have have. Um, I don't want to say taken for granted, but we've been very comfortable in the system that is operating because it's incredibly, incredibly safe. It has been, um, you know, since a, a large passenger plane crashed in the U.S., it's over 20 years now. And so um, that that is uh, that changes how we think about the system, how we take it for granted, uh, the complexity of it. And, you know, look, the this is a, this is a very long answer to a really good question. The the industry consolidated a lot. Airlines combined. Um, and when they combined, this was all happening at a time when journalism was really hurting. Um, newspapers were getting killed on by, by uh, the emergence of Internet companies and the ad revenues were going away. And so you what all of a sudden you had, you know, look, you had Continental in Houston and you had United in Chicago. And if you had a beat reporter for Continental in um, in Houston, and you had a beat reporter for United in in Chicago, and then all of a sudden you have one company, hmm. right? And do you need do you need two beat reporters? Do you? It, and so all of this is happening as aviation is getting considerably safer, unbelievably, unimaginably safe, which is wonderful. Um, so the type of skills that an aviation reporter and covering the business would need was very different than say in the 80s or the 90s when these things would happen far more frequently. So the nature of how aviation coverage has changed is very much a story of how media has evolved as well, where the the um, what each individual reporter is doing is so much more stretched and so um, – so, you know, you have to be used to be just a journalist when you have to be a journalist, you have to be a writer, you have to be a video producer, you have to be a podcast producer, you have to you have to shoot your own stuff, you have to design your own art and you have to you know do search engine optimization, you have to CMS man, like all of this, right? There's a million different things that you that you'd have to do. And oh, by the way, that you're outnumbered like six or seven to one by PR people. And so you're constantly, you know, and you're constantly not sure if you're going to lose your job next week. So the nature of that is really different. The upshot of all of that is what I've, what we can't, what I realized five years ago was that there was a growing opportunity to do a different type of journalism because of all of this, because of how stretched and how um, fragile the mainstream and even the trade media e ecosystem was to be able to say, okay, let's slow down and go deep. 
and 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 that allowed for look the, the you can't have a media world shrink while the aviation industry grows globally but that's what's exactly what's happening so they're going in different directions so we have to be able to appreciate the fact that that there is a wave to to ride here and that the demand for good information for smart reporting for depth is not only greater but it's even more essential uh than it than it was you know 10 years ago because of just the need for understanding how the complexity of this incredible system globally functions every day. And John, what I'd like to propose is that there's actually a third form of journalism as well. And not saying that it's really reporting on the news, but it's things like what Micah and I are doing where we're talking about the passenger experience. So it's sort of factual based reporting, but it's not news. Right. And to, and to me, it's also not very good journalism either. Well, but, it's educational. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 maybe. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, and, and, you know, it's and it's explanatory, I think, and, and giving people a window into why this works and how it works and how people experience it is, is tremendously important because, you know, look, a joke I've been I've been carrying around with me for a long time is that, you know, if people knew how complex the global aviation system was they'd either either uh, never complain or never fly you know and so and so to, to to let people give them the opportunity to to see this and see it from all the different angles and how much oh, by the way how much they don't see still um is 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 amazing so uh long-winded answer to a great question hmm. fantastic thank you thank you for that all right, let's uh, let's jump ahead a little bit in the news that we have uh, lined up. And uh, Rob, you found a item in the New York Times titled "American Airlines Pilots Refuse Recorded Interview with Safety Board." What was the story behind this? Well, th- this goes back to the uh, incident that uh, uh, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, where uh, where two aircraft at JFK got awfully close together, uh, and American Airlines. Uh, uh, heavy, uh, I believe it was a triple seven, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it was. Uh, the the departure runway was four left, and if you know the the way Kennedy set up, everything's kind of up at the northeast corner. And uh, the these pilots, for some reason, uh, thought they were going to a different runway, which would have required them to cross runway four left, uh, which of course was a problem because. The uh, tower controller had cleared a Delta 737 for takeoff on four left about the time that the American Airlines aircraft crossed the runway. And um, uh, controllers don't like that. Pilots don't like that. If passengers knew, uh, they, they wouldn't like it either. Uh, but stuff happens. Uh, and, and normally, uh, it's, it goes back to what John was saying. We have an incredibly, uh, incredibly efficient, safe system uh and and we have had for a very long time but every so often something slips through the cracks so of course the ntsb wanted to wants to know gee what happened because we want to be able to focus on how we can prevent this kind of thing from happening again so they they uh they talked to the uh uh, air traffic controllers. They talk to the pilots involved. Uh, they talk to the companies. Uh, they they talk to the controllers union. Uh, probably airport management. Uh, uh, everybody you could think of. And um, 
they say, well, we're going to gather our facts. And as uh, John was pointing out, you know, you, you just have to kind of see where the story leads you and then say what makes sense and what doesn't and where are the holes and where we need to do more investigation. And uh, so that's also, I, I like John's explanation. That's a long answer to a very short question. Uh, but uh, it it uh, happened this last week, uh, NTSB wanted the pilots to sit down and uh, to give them the, the, the rundown of what had occurred. And uh, as the NTSB often does, uh, they wanted to record it. And the pilot said, no, we're not going to allow you to record the interviews. And uh, that is, I, I mean, I can tell you from having known a, a number of people at NTSB, they absolutely record these interviews. This is this is nothing new. Uh, why the Allied Pilots Association is is taking a stand on this one, I don't know. Uh, I know there are enough loud people in the industry that are shaking their heads uh, because it's it's very similar to what what happens in life in general. Uh, when somebody takes you on the side and says, "Look, you were involved in this fight. Who started it?" You know, what did you do? What did they do? And you go, I, I don't, I'm not going to talk about it. Oh, really? Well, well, well why not? Yeah, uh, you know, and you, you tend to start wondering what, what, who has what to gain, and uh, what, what is somebody missing? Um, and uh, uh, I think NTSB also uh, was going to have a court reporter there uh, that was going to type literally word for word what the pilots were going to say and give them an opportunity to see the transcript and make any corrections that they wanted to, to make sure it was accurate. And the union still said no. Uh, And so that's really got an awful lot of people scratching their heads because in the grand scheme of things, most airlines will not allow, uh, I mean, we even had the, at at the corporate level, if we were involved in a deal, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say a deal, that's air, air traffic controller talk for a screw up. But if we were involved in a deal, uh, an incident before takeoff, even in a biz jet, we were we were required to taxi back to the hangar uh, and, and just get out of the airplane, even though the passengers were going to be upset uh, because you, you need to take a breath and and get your head around what it was that actually happened uh, because you didn't want to be carrying that out to 35,000 feet on a long flight going, oh my God, did you do? No, it wasn't my fault. It was you. You were the one that was supposed to do this and, and, and start arguments and second guessing. And, and that's what you don't want to have. Uh, the Delta crew taxied back to the gate. The American crew took off. And, and no one can quite figure that out because uh, from the folks I've spoken to, they, I'm sure they have that, uh, you know, in their in their, uh, uh, you know, ops manual that says if you're involved in a situation like that, you don't take off. You go back to the gate. Uh, and um, but so so there's just some things here that just don't make any sense uh, to this uh, story and, and why the crew is. Uh, uh, I forgot what the uh, union actually said, that the uh, the recording would make people less apt to give uh, to, to speak the truth. Uh, which I, 
I don't know. In this industry, I've never heard anybody say that because in this last decade, we've been very good about promoting a just culture, uh, which was, you know, the acronym John used for, you know, pilots being able to report situations without feeling as if they're going to be instantly condemned or fired or whatever, because the goal is to try to fix the problem. And and in this case, uh, there's just an awful lot of why are they doing this kind of uh, scratching their heads? So, but that's my to try to answer because I actually I, I think there I think there's actually a, a, a sub thread here that was not mentioned in in either by the NTSB or oh, or APA. Um, it's not that they are concerned about the recording or being videotaped. That's as you said, pr- really normal. The question is, what happens to those videotapes? After the fact, and I think that there is a concern uh, that they will be made public, and the ability for if those are foyable, for example, uh, what happens in terms of record keeping? These are government agencies. Uh, are if they're if they are um, uh, kept, how are they kept? How are they kept in confidence? Uh, and the concern I think is that uh, those tapes will jeopardize future candor from other folks in in other incidents if those any video deposition is preserved i don't know i don't know if i agree with that only because of the fact that we've been doing this for many years and uh these these uh, uh depositions these recordings have not slipped into the media unexpectedly at least that i know of I think that I think that they I think that they've been destroyed after for that exact reason, if I'm not mistaken. Well, and we don't know that the NTSB didn't say, well, fine. Well, once we get the facts, we'll destroy these, too. So, again, I guess why now? Why with this particular situation does this come up? I think you hit the nail on the head, which is I think you're suggesting there's a there's been a there may have been a policy change at NTSB. Uh, well, that is certainly that is certainly possible. Uh, and that would be something that we wouldn't have any direct, uh, uh, you know, knowledge of at this point. But I mean, uh, we, we've often heard about uh, if you can have a cockpit voice recorder in an airliner, why can't you have a video recorder? Well, the Alpa and Allied pilots have been against that from day one for exactly the reasons that John is stating uh, that. Yeah. Uh, a video, yeah, you might know more about what's going on in a cockpit prior to an incident or an accident, but uh, what happens to those recordings after it's done? And I, I think that has always been uh, an issue. I think that's something that uh, uh, I, I think it's up to, since APA is the one that's uh, taking the, the board to task, I think it's up to them to say, well, since you mentioned it, Let's go back and look at and, and give them some examples of, of times where that information has become public. And I, I just don't know of any myself, uh, but, and that doesn't mean it couldn't happen. But again, I guess I'm just a bit dumbstruck about why this particular situation now. And isn't it convenient that both of the cockpit voice recorders are wiped clean? Uh, you know... I, I'm sorry, I read detective stories. So, you know, I, I'm not trying to make this into something more than it is, but it just it just sounds awfully strange to me. Maybe there's heightened sensitivity to uh, these things being made public. Um, as, as John was 
suggesting? Oh, I, I think there always has been. Yes, I, I agree. They shouldn't be made public. That's why cockpit voice recorders, recordings themselves are never made public. But I'm, yes, but I'm talking about sort of heightened sensitivity as a result of all the political depositions and testimony and things that are being made public. Uh, police, um, um, you know, vest cams or, or, or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of, it's, I'm just thinking, I'm supposing, there's a lot of things that uh, didn't used to be so public and maybe that's fueling the concern on the part of the union uh, and or the pilots to you know not want to I, I I don't know I just sort of sort of throw it out there well I mean to, to John's point I mean about what is foible I mean uh, to uh, to uh, file a freedom of information act in what was the in Memphis you know a couple of weeks ago I mean the news media all filed those and and, and got them to release the body cam. You can't do that in an aviation, at least not legally. Uh, NTSB will, will turn down any kind of a FOIA request for, uh, for that kind of information. Um, I bet you, I'm sure, uh, you know, media have tried to FOIA, uh, you know, uh, recordings and videos and all that of accidents and incidents and, uh, again, I, I don't believe they've ever gotten access to them. Right, uh, but with these recordings and with videos, if you've done nothing wrong, what do you have to worry about? Yeah, there's that. Yeah, too. Well, that's, that's, yeah. The, that's the old... Uh, yeah. we, there's a bit, of, it's a bit of a loaded line, uh, sure. given you know, civil liberties and, and the occasional uh, and the way uh, historical abuse and such things. things well, just to do this, if, if you haven't done anything wrong, what's the problem? Well, yeah. mm -hmm. who decides? Yeah. 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 <laughs> there's a little bit of history there. All right. John, how are we doing on time? You know, the little ones are on their way back right now, so I probably should begin to spool down. This has been so much fun. And, and, and John, just to answer the question, since I put my associate producer hat on, you're on episode 41 in 2009, episode 241 in 2013, and episode 515 in 2018. Excellent. So this is number four. Awesome. Okay. We've we've talked about him more than that. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, John. I'm sorry, but you're just not ready for that uh, uh, episode <laughs> jacket. five jacket yet. Twenty twenty five, guys. Twenty twenty five. All right. So, John, tell our listeners uh, once more the website where they can uh, find out more information about the controller. Absolutely. Yeah. It's Yaman Flight. Y a w m a n f l i g h t dot com. Fantastic. Is the company looking at other products in the future, do you think? Stay tuned. Ah, <laughs> we're, not done. We're, we're not. Let's put this in. We're, we are, we are not, uh, not going to be a one-hit wonder on this one. We are, we are, um, we've got a, 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 a bunch of things uh, in our back pocket, and we are a creative bunch. So we've we got things on, and, on the horizon. And, you know, Max, uh, I would just say that. I want the balloon shoot-down simulator. <laughs> <laughs> it works in DCS. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Max, I was going to say, if, if John and, and that company wanted to uh, uh, find anybody to help, you know, roll out their equipment, test it, you know, whatever, I, feel free to give John my address, although oh, right. I know he knows my phone number, but I, I just thought I would make that I've, I've lost clear. three times already, Rob. I've yeah, lost I know. Three times already. And I <laughs> keep calling. I keep calling. In fact, I just want to say something really funny. Five years ago, uh, John rang me about a position, an editorial position that had opened up at a a magazine that uh, I used to work at, 
uh, because they had lost their editor in chief. And he said, do you think? I said, yeah, well, you know. And so I called him back about a week later. I said, so are you going to uh, think you're going to interview for that? He said, no, I'm really thinking of creating my own news uh, outlet and, uh, you know, in-depth media. And I, I said, Okay, well, and and everybody I talked to for the next week uh, said, hey, did you hear what John is doing? No, he's going out on his own, and he's going to, no, shit, wow, that is really, and, and it varied between, that guy is nuts, to, boy, that is pretty bold. And uh, I, I, honest to God, I, I mean, I'm just, uh, I, I've probably said this to you already, but I'm really proud to have known you back in the old days when, uh, you and Dan and I had that picture taken at Midway Airport oh, yeah. when oh, after we man. came out of the pizza place. Yeah, oh, and, that was and, that was a blast. We were all just nobodies then, <laughs> and now you is somebody. Uh, you guys are the best. Uh, that's so kind of you to say. And look, it is. I I am. I'm the luckiest guy in this business. Honestly, this journey has been extraordinary. And you know, just wake up every morning and be like, wait. You know, you tell your 11 year old self that's screwing with flight sim, this is what you're going to be doing when you're 39 years old and be like, OK, I think they'll be. That, but, John, you're be- also one of the nicest guys in the business. Oh, Dave, that's that's OK. We've always we've always, you know, you're always been kind, approachable, you know, and it, it's always been really fun having you part of our family. You know, you're you're you are an airplane geek from day one. So. You know, oh, man, I, I can't reach into the right... phone and give you a hug right now. But, I, man, this is like the moment. Oh, you, guys, you guys are the best. All right. Do, do you think that's going to have anything to do with whether we get those controllers or not? <laughs> oh, I, oh, I'm He's sorry. Trying. Oh, God, was my mic open? Oh, jeez. Oh, Rob, you're so – oh, jeez. Oh, always... So this is, this, this is the point where I say we got the rest of the show to do. So. Yeah. Yep. Hey, John, it's been really great. Okay. Thanks, John. Thank you, guys. The gentlemen, a pleasure as always. And um, seriously, I'm looking forward to my to hitting that my punch card for number five. You got it. A quick what's up with the geeks. Let's see. Uh, Brian, we're getting close. And uh, what's up next? We are very, very close. I'm actually leaving tonight for South Africa, and I have 48,000 miles left on my quest to get my official 3 million mile status with United. Does United have some kind of a ceremony, or do you get a free upgrade on that flight? <laughs> or Oh, it certainly won't be free. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've been told by crew that they make a deal out of it no one will tell me what the deal is so i'm not sure if it's just the flight attendants come by and say congratulations or the captain will make an announcement or they'd have balloons and cupcakes i I truly have no idea what's what's in store i know the million mile mark the captains have been getting uh challenge coins that they've been giving out to people that are the million mile customers and um on, on my last flight the captain came over to me and he says, oh, I see you're at three million miles. I said, no, but I'm really close. And he handed me a challenge coin anyway. Uh-huh. So I thought that was really nice. But yeah, I wasn't quite at three million yet. So I, I truly have no idea what's going to happen. Maybe you'll get a really effective customer service phone number. Ooh, that would be nice. I mean, to the big guys. Yeah. 
But that won't be 1-800. That'll be just a direct line. A little bit of listener mail. Um, let's see. We've got a couple uh, postings from our Slack group. Uh, the first is from, boy, how do you say this? Natery Demand. Natery Demand? I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but that's the handle. Nate. He writes in Slack. I just finished episodes 735 and 736, and he has two comments. So on 735, he writes, uh, Mr. Vanderhoof, no one answered your question as to why the Aspen, Colorado airport is where it is with the troubles it has. As a career pilot who has been making a few trips a year in and out of Aspen for the last 23 years, I have the same questions. And, of course, plenty of opinions on the subject. However, I think a finer question should really be, why do we fly the aircraft types we do in and out of Aspen? To me, it's the types of operations there that creates the problems. Assuming our modern fancy jets are being operated safely, ethically, legally, the solutions lie in accepting the limitations of the place and that much of the time Aspen is not a reliable, accessible place to go. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I, I personally think that the, uh, the problem with Aspen is not the airport. It is uh, the quality of the training that some pilots have before they attempt it because it is, um, it's a place where you've really got to be on your game. Uh, you're, you're basically dumping an airplane in the middle of a bunch of hill, hills, mountains, I mean, they are really hard rock mountains, and uh, there's no there's no room for mistakes, and people forget that. An analogy came to my mind in reading this, uh, which is uh, it's a Formula One story, and sometimes the drivers will complain about a track; it's too bumpy, or the runoff areas are are insufficient. Uh, and they oftentimes can exert a lot of um, influence on making changes to the track. But my view has always been the opposite. It's like, no, the track is what the track is. Your job is to find a way to win a race on that track, not to mold the track to your ideal environment. And so when I think about Aspen here, it has different physical environmental characteristics and so should you know should the air, uh, should the airport conform to a variety of aircraft types and skill levels or should the airport essentially say it is what it is and in order to operate safely from what it is this is what you either have to fly what you have to know what you have to do I, you know, I don't know if it's if it's a valid kind of uh, kind of a, a viewpoint, but it, it's kind of what made what I thought of. I, I think it is in this particular case because uh, there there are restrictions about uh, 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 operations into Aspen uh, at night in bad weather. Uh, you have to be uh, ready in case you lose sight of the airport to you know what we call miss the approach, which is. Uh, essentially, you know, pouring the coals to it and and going around, but it, it's a very narrow uh, canyon that the airport's in, and you have to have pre-briefed the the missed approach. You can't just say, "Oh, let's just go around and we'll try it again." Uh, no, 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 not at Aspen. In fact, none of those 
uh, airports, while the rest of them are not quite as bad, uh, Eagle is no challenge uh, or is is no uh, uh, piece of cake either. Uh, Rifle's a little easier, uh, but anything in an area, I think, where there are big rocks waiting to knock you out of the sky if you're not careful, I think is a challenge. Uh, But again, uh, you know, to... uh, to, to look at some of the accidents that have happened recently, um, pilots just did stupid stuff. They just did. They did not respect the the airplanes they were flying and their capabilities, uh, nor the restrictions on where they, you know, restrictions on where you can go. If I take off out of Chicago, I mean, it's pretty easy. I can head almost any direction uh, short of uh, going south, which would take me right over O'Hare. Uh, but and then I'd probably lose my certificates. But you know, you go east out over the lake, north towards Wisconsin, west towards Iowa. You're not going to hit anything. I mean, there, there's nothing there. But but in you know in in the mountains in the Rockies, oh, ho, ho, not not so easy. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, there was a second episode that our listener commented on. This was episode seven thirty six, and he says, "Mr. Mark." I can only speculate now that the military had to wait until the balloon was over the water before taking it out of the sky. After all, what if it was full of turkeys? <laughs> Viva la Les Nesman. Oh, God. You know, come on, guys. That, that This whole balloon thing, uh, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm grateful for the fact that we have listeners that, that ask such articulate questions and that some of them actually do have a sense of humor. That's always a good thing. Um, but as we're going to talk about in a little bit, my gosh, I mean, this whole balloon thing lately is just, is it not insane? And David, you're the military guy. How can pilots go out there and, I mean, to us laymen, right? I, cause I don't know nothing about the military. I mean, for a pilot to go out there and shoot something down and nobody knows what it is. Uh, we all know they know what it is. They're just not saying what it is. But it sounds really silly to, to think that they're shooting stuff down, but they can't tell nobody what it is. Um, there's a lot of things that fly in the sky, Rob, that people can't identify. You know, But we don't shoot UFOs down. That's because we will remember the day the Earth stood still. Uh, we have we have tried shooting UFOs down. There's the great um, incident over Washington D.C. where a pilot died flying a P-51, who was in a climb and was oxygen starved, trying to reach what he thought was a UFO and tried shooting at it. Mm-hmm. So the Air Force has had a history of shooting down things in the sky that are unknown. You are moving at a high rate of speed. These are small objects, and Yes, we, we've learned a lot over the last two weeks. But the reason, one of the reasons why it's changed is because they've changed the parameters of what they're looking for. They were never looking for slow, high-moving altitudes. So the radars or filters have been changing. And suddenly things are coming quicker um, and if you are going to overfly the United States airspace without permission, you're going to get shot down. 
you know, it, that's that's a given, you know, and China's argument over was that we fly balloons over China on a regular basis. Um, we don't fly balloons. What China doesn't want to admit is that we don't need to overfly their country to get intelligence. We fly things down the South China Sea, which is spying. Um, we have RC-135s going up and down that time all the time doing signals intelligence and and and. All of that is spying, but we aren't overflying the country. We haven't overflown China since the Vietnam War in the late 60s. We haven't flown the Soviet Union in since the late 50s. Since yeah, the but we have satellites incident. to do that. This is true, but that's not overflying a nation's territory. Yeah, you know they China has China has satellites also. They're not as good as ours. So they're, they need these kind of technologies. Um, you know, the, the last shoot down over Lake Huron, um, it was a small object at 20,000 feet. And that wouldn't have been something we would be looking for up until recently, unfortunately. But those are those kind of incidents. Um, the, and one of the things that people aren't talking about is with the Chinese balloon over South, South Carolina, the amount of effort it required to shoot that down was at the top limit of the F-22's flight envelope. And um, the AM-9X Sidewinder that was fired, they didn't even think it was capable of flying that high. To blow up the envelope, we are testing the envelope. The skills of the pilot that took out that F twenty that F twenty two pilot was absolutely phenomenal. That we had the ability to do that because I think part of the incident why it was going across the country was they hadn't figured out how to shoot that down yet. You can't use a radar guided missile because there's no radar to lock on. The, the balloons that high don't give off enough of a radar, a infrared signature to use an infrared missile. And what about bullets? Uh, you shoot bullets, they come back down. Yeah, when you shoot a sidewinder, the bits of the sidewinder come back down too, and I believe there's a lot more of them. No, there's a lot more bullets. And the bullets would not, the bullets at that altitude would not, fired from the F-22 would not reach the balloon. The M-61 cannon is a short-range weapon. You were at the maximum altitude of the F-22, and you needed that missile to go the extra distance. The bullets would have never gotten through. And last but not least, if you put it down over water, you can recover it with less damage than if you put it over land. Yeah, that's what... And we wanted... And we wanted to make sure that we got every little bit of that satellite or that balloon. Yeah, yeah. I haven't heard anybody bring that up, but that's what I thought when people were saying, you know, hey, why did you wait so long to shoot it down? It's like, yeah, over the water. What, you know, if you're going to... Well, gonna... and and if and the supporting argument that, to that is, look at, they shot the, the one last Friday over Dead Horse in Alaska. They still haven't reached it yet because it's over land, but the weather's so bad. Yeah. Up in the right. So we've almost got the whole thing recovered over the in forty seven feet of water off the coast of South Carolina. 
Um, I mean, at the time, it was it is a very very unique thing. We haven't shot balloons down till uh, since World War One, and ironically, the F twenty two call signs were Frank O one and Frank O two. And the reason why they were frank was in honor of the only U.S. Air, U.S. pilot that was a balloon ace in World War One. He had shot down five German balloons and dirigibles. So, I mean, those are aspects of this that I mean, yeah. It who knows? Ancient aliens theorists say it was aliens, but. Those things, I love that show. All things considered, if there's something unknown and it's flying in civilian airspace at an altitude where there are aircraft surrounding it, yeah, take it out. That's the, the, the most important thing just for the safety of our airspace. John was talking about how safe our airspace is and how we've come to take it for granted. Well, now we've got things flying in it without permission and um, are danger to that airspace. And okay, it means we're going to take them out, you know, and we have the ability to do it, luckily. You know, any higher, that out balloon might still be going to Europe. So Rob found an interesting uh, YouTube uh, video of the um, intercept audio from the uh, the Chinese balloon that was sh- shot down. Uh, this is really interesting listening, Rob. I, I thought it was, and it was just so, uh, it really is unique by, by my standards, at least. I don't hear that kind of uh, audio. I guess I was also impressed with the fact that this uh, UK-based uh, 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 radio monitor uh, figured out what frequencies, I don't know, David, maybe that's very common knowledge of what frequencies the... Uh, uh, the the military are operating. I know they're UHF, but uh, I, did they make a guide that someone would easily be able to figure out what frequency an interceptor would be on? There's a lot of stuff out there. If you look, you can find oh. it. There's a lot of people who listen to military things. And interestingly enough, um, the shoot down. We're recording this on Monday, the thirteenth. The shoot down on the on the twelfth over Lake Huron. Um, the the zone of uh, the war zone tyler ridgeways got the recordings from yesterday's shoot down of the two f-16s taking over lake huron so they're going to get released anyway we've got a better chance of knowing what the f-16 shot down than the f-22 because the f-16 has got uh forward looking um a, a targeting pod that uses visual so if anyone's seen the UAP phenomena of the F-18s the, um, where over the Pacific, where they've got the Tic Tac and uh, those items, and they were used cameras, the, the, video, the, the F-22 doesn't have that technology. The F-16 does. So we might get a better chance of seeing the F-16 shoot down earlier than the F-22, the two F-22 shoot downs. I mean, considering the F-22 now is three for three on balloons, and those were the first three air-to-air kills of the aircraft. I mean, the 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 F-16 community and the F-15 community are laughing their butts off that the F-22 is now claimed to fame as it shoots balloons. But 
it's an important thing that we haven't, even in the Cold War, we never had anyone cross over into our airspace. There, there's a series of pictures out there with a, um, a, a Tu-95, which is the Bear Bomber, the Soviet Bear Bomber, Turbobomber. It's bomber. still flying. It's still flying. It's as old as the B-52. But there are hundreds of photographs taken of the Bear Bomber and you can do a collage where you can see the bear bomber with early phantoms and then tomcats and then eagles, then F-16s and even F-22s because they're still being flown. But those bombers never crossed into U.S. airspace. They got to the identification zone, which the ID zones are across the um, coasts of America and across the Arctic I, where we sent up aircraft to intercept them and they fly across and they go and they wait. We, we provided, um, what is it in Top Gun? Um, diplomatic relations. And then they left. Yeah. <laughs> but again, nothing crossed over. At least we didn't know. I mean, now it's come out that it looks like there were several balloons across the United States during the previous administration before they figured this out, this out. Um, but any country has the right to defend their airspace. And if they're going to go send something across it, it's going to get shot down. Sure. Look at the, the Cuban Missile Crisis back in the 60s. Uh, wasn't that precipitated with uh, the, the Russians shooting down that U-2? Well, the... Well, the 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 ob the answer the answer to the Cuban Missile Crisis was the U two spotted the um the missiles. That's what started the crisis. But oh, I thought process, it was I thought it was over the Soviet Union when it uh, was shot down. Well, no, the right. Well, there was two shoot. There were two um, high value shoot downs of the U two. The first one was Francis Gary Power, which was doing an overflight from um, over the Soviet Union, um, and that was shot down, and unfortunately, and power survived, but the Soviets then were able to, we, we acknowledged that we were overflying the Soviet Union, unfortunately, which we weren't supposed to be doing. It's against the law. The other one was during the Cuban Missile Crisis, a U-2 was shot down by the Cubans because it was overflying during surveillance, but that was during the crisis itself. Um, so those are those were two time, but that's the 1950s. We haven't done any sort of overflights. Um, now, if you want to go technical, we never did any manned overflights over China. However, the United States launched D21 hypersonic drones, the the ones that look like small little SR71s, but they were unmanned that we overflew China with. And how do you know this? Because it's common history. If you know U.S. government, CIA ops, and, and Air Force operations during, during the Vietnam War. And actually, the Chinese shot down one of the DO-21 um, drones. So if you go out to the Museum of Flight, you can see the um, D-20 drone, D-21 drone on top of... Um, the Oxcart aircraft. The, there's a couple other ones scattered around the country, um, but they were basically little SR-71s, a single-engine SR-71 unmanned drone. So we never flew a manned aircraft over China, but we flew a couple of unmanned aircraft. 
Well, the good news, I think, is that the Defense Department this afternoon uh, in a news conference said that they can absolutely uh, uh, verify that the uh, things that have been shooting, that the items that they've been shooting down are not alien technology. Uh, and uh, Well, you know what, you know what, Matt, Rob, you were just almost even better. And you know what the even better part that it was, aren't alien technology is? They're not shooting back. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Good point. That is a very good point. All right. We're going to call it a wrap at this point. We've got some other topics that we were going to talk about, but we'll have to defer them to next episode. So we want to thank you all for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Our guest again was John Ostrauer, editor-in-chief of The Air Current. You can find that at theaircurrent.com. And he's also developing, working with the Yawman team, developing this new controller, new uh, flight sim controller. And that web page is yawmanflight.com, Y-A-W-M-A-N, flight.com. And, of course, you can find us at airplanegeeks.com. And the email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right, let's wrap it up, guys. David Vanderhoof, anything closing? Now you can uh, check us out. Check, you can always find me like um, Derek uh, did the other day at the American Helicopter Museum and, of course, on social media. And last but not least, um, that podcast on Fridays that comes out called the UAV Digest with Max Flight. And Rob Mark, how about you? Oh, all the usual places, including jetwine.com. In fact, we mentioned uh, uh, Srinand last time. Remember, we were talking yep. about the fellow who had, uh, you know, worked at um, Singapore Airlines as a uh, uh, an abidicio trainee. I, he sent me an email, and because uh, I, it was ten years ago that uh, uh, just a little over me, it was eleven. Uh, that he and I hooked up through the show here, and I met him up at Milwaukee and drove him up to Oshkosh uh, for the show. And uh, so he said he is flying with uh, Cutter Airlines uh, on the. Uh, uh, oh my God, Shannon, I'm very sorry. I you know these big jet airplanes. I get so confused by all the numbers seven 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 eight seven. I mean, they're all the same, aren't they? I mean, come on. They're big uh, and they fly. Yeah, they're big jets. So, uh, but it was nice to hear from you, and I, I hope uh, uh, I'm too cheap to send you an email. So, if you hear this episode, you'll have to tell us if you're headed up to uh, uh, up to Air Venture this year, and uh, and then we'll uh, hook up uh, there and and have some beers. Oh wait, can we say beer on the show? Uh, yes, you said <laughs> earlier. Oh, did, did I? <laughs> yeah, you oh, did. God damn it. I can't believe it. <laughs> Brian Coleman. How about you? <laughs> the best place to get a hold of me is at brian at airplanegeeks.com, or you could follow the adventures um, that I'm documenting with Micah on the journeyistherreward.org. Very good. All right, everybody, please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Nighty night. Fly safely. Keep the blue side up. And thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>